0: Um, As I said, we're a couple weeks outside of our uh, family vacations, um, and at our house, uh, tans are beginning to fade, um, which is always funny because we have two very different skin tones. Um, In our house, some of the kids got my skin with kind of the Native American tones, um, which are holding on to the Texas tans uh, a little bit. More um, And some got Esther's Irish skin, which have already gone back to being see-through. Um, which always makes me think of this story um, from when Josiah and Matthew, my two oldest sons, were little. When I was a children's pastor, I used to go up once a month uh, to an inner-city church uh, that had their kids' services on Tuesday nights. Um, and I would do kids' services for this inner-city church. Um, and, uh, and it was amazing because, you know, we did characters and big object lessons and crazy stuff. And a lot of times we did it for Johnson County kids um, who were like, this is boring. I'd much rather play a video game. You know, they're really hard to entertain. They, they've got everything. and it's it, But, man, you go down there and explosive engagement and laughter at everything you did. So it was kind of a blast to do. Um, and, uh, and so we loved going up, uh, and it was kind of a big deal to them. For us to come up and put on a big show. So we'd get there. Once I took Josiah Matthew with me, um, and other than the pastor's sons, they were the only um, white kids in this big room full of kids. Uh, and the service went well. We were on the way home, and Josiah looked very concerned on the way home. He had this look that he would do when he was thinking hard where his eyebrows would draw down, and he would get real quiet. And, uh, and so I see him, and uh, I kind of asked if, if, if he was okay, and and he says, hey, Dad, did, did you notice that most of those kids were black? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, actually, I did notice. And he said, why, why were there so many black kids? And so I explained to him how oh, some neighborhoods have more black people than others, and some have more white people than others. And, of course, he wanted to know why, and so I did my best to explain that we have a tendency to feel more comfortable uh, around people who look like us and act like us, and so some people stay close to people that are just like them, and, they get a little scared around people who look different and Josiah looks even more concerned and uh, uh, and my second son Matthew is sitting in the car with us and he's just listening to this whole exchange he hasn't said anything and, and finally Josiah goes I don't think it should be that way and uh, and I explained that I, I don't either I don't, I don't think it should either and he said I think it's better if we live all mixed up because I'm white skinned and Matthew's dark skinned and we get along just fine <laughs> They're brothers, but just because their skin tone um, is so different, he assumed they were a different race, which is amazing. Anyway, um, last week I told you we were wrapping up our study of the book of Acts um, with that overview of chapter 15. Um, but the, and this week was supposed to be our fifth, uh, sun, uh, fifth Sunday family service, uh, which means according to the calendar that I kind of filled out, um, at the beginning of the summer, I wasn't supposed to need a sermon today. Um, so I, I, don't, uh, I didn't really have a topic going into today um, to get us started. Uh, and I wasn't sure I was ready to kind of immediately dive into our next study, which is going to be a study of kind of the theology of church unity. Um, I realize Acts 15, um, our text from last week, uh, actually turns out to be an amazing case study. On church uh, unity all by itself, and so I thought what I would do is revisit the same story we talked about last week, and this week we're going to look at this kind of entire situation between the church at Antioch and the church at Jerusalem, uh, as as to what it has to say to church unity. Um, So this is this our last week of Acts or our first week in our unity study, and the answer is yes. So we talked last week about how Paul um, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey were surprised um, by not only the lackluster response by the Jews to this gospel message, but the kind of unexpected um, uh, excitement by these Gentile believers to that same message. Um, We also talked about the way um, that that began to change the ethos uh, or the culture of um, of the church uh, outside of Jerusalem. Um, in Antioch, the, the, the believers um, began to bear this Greek name, Christian, um, rather than uh, a Hebrew name that came with all the backstory of the Old Testament. Well, as it often happens, differences began to breed division. Um, the Jewish believers in Jesus, who were really excited that Gentiles were being saved, believed that the next logical step was for the Gentile believers in this Jewish Messiah uh, to begin to follow this Jewish king in a Jewish way. Uh, Namely, to be initiated into Torah via circumcision uh, and then live from that point on according to Torah's precepts. Um, The Gentile believers and a couple key Jews did not like this idea. Not only would circumcision be a hard sell (laughs) to begin with, understandably, um, but it seems like uh, it was a move in the wrong direction. They already had Jesus. They already had everything. Um, to them, it felt like sitting down with your belly full after a big meal and your mom walking in and going, hey, wash your hands before you eat. Like, <laughs> it's a little way now, you know. Um, and, uh, and so here's the deal. We can make light of that. <laughs> and oftentimes we, we have a tendency to. We got April jumping in saying, "So, cheers is open for a family service next week." You know, we were talking about that since it's a promotion Sunday. Um, doing our family service one week late. Hang on to that idea. The only thing that concerns me is um, normally for our family services, we have our kids sing with us, and um, and I don't know that that will work with our full quarantine that we're trying to get to make sure everybody stays quarantined for the full amount after last Sunday um, to have a practice, and so. We may just bring kids up and wing it. Kids who have sung with us before, um, and you see how a Sunday morning practice goes. That, that's in the works, so be praying about that and and text me and talk to me about that if you're interested in that um, because that is definitely an idea. Okay, um, yeah, having you guys in the uh, in the group chat um, and online is going to be awesome for my ADD. Uh, but I like it. I like knowing that we're doing this together and you guys are are there and engaged, so don't stop. Um, we can make light of the fact that that uh, that this conflict was going on, and it seems like a, a silly conflict from where we stand today, um, but it was an important uh, moment that was going on. Um, we cheapen it if we pretend like it was cut and dry, black and white. Um, there were people on both sides who were incredibly invested, and were going to feel a great loss. And probably have to do some major theological um, recomputing if, uh, if, if their side was proven wrong. Um, so the Antioch church sends Paul and Barnabas and some others back to Jerusalem to seek the wisdom um, of the apostles. And the, the Antioch delegates get to Jerusalem. Um, a full debate breaks out. And in the end, the council decides that the Gentile church is not supposed to be the Jewish church. Um, They send Paul Barnabas back with a letter explaining a small handful of rules um, that the church was supposed to obey. And and as far as the burden of obeying Torah, it was lifted from the non-Jewish believers. And it is a gigantic moment in church history because it's the birth of what we know of as church. Up until this point, um, the church was a sect of Judaism. But from this point on, uh, Antioch, as well as the churches in the rest of Asia Minor and soon to be Europe, are going to be able to follow the Holy Spirit and develop what for 2,000 years we've known of as the Western Church. So this is kind of a big deal. Um, and just a, another quick AVD break. Uh, you guys know how cold it gets in here on Sunday mornings. A lot of that coldness is soaked up by bodies and so my wife is literally in the back. I would put the camera if I wasn't afraid I'd mess it up. Um, wrapped in a blanket, shivering, just trying trying to stay warm. So it feels amazing in here to me. Um, Anyway, but this story, as a case story of unity, is fascinating. Um, And I think it's perfect to launch um, a look at what the Bible says about unity, um, because I'm going to spend the next three or four weeks talking about something none of us have ever seen. Uh, I'm going to spend three or four weeks talking about something that sounds great, but seems impossible. Uh, And and before I spend all of that time talking about this topic that will honestly, no matter how much of a biblical case I make for it, sound like a pipe dream, um, I think it's, uh, it's important to look at a time right here in Acts 15 when it worked. When, uh, when the church had a serious conflict, major theological differences, major lifestyle differences, major behavioral differences, major background and cultural differences, but managed to work together as a single church to find a way to stay one church. So we're going to start um, with this story because they did it. Um, they walked right up to the brink of division and denied it, um, which makes me feel like we need to learn from them not just what it looked like to walk around doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus and spreading the gospel everywhere they went, but, uh, but like we did for the, the last 13 weeks, but to look at uh, what it looks like to fight for Jesus' longest and most detailed prayer. And that's a prayer for, um, uh, for unity amongst His body. Um, so here's what we're going to do um, this morning. We're going to start by looking... Uh, together at the setting of this conflict. Um, Before we dive into kind of how to maintain unity, I'd like to unpack a little bit of what's happening in this story that makes it a fitting example to follow for 2021. Um, After that, we'll look at what they actually did that makes this a powerful story. Hopefully we can draw something from that to help us navigate um, a church that's terribly divided um, as we work to obey biblical commands for unity. Um, and finally, we'll look at, uh, at how everything turns out. <laughs> it would be nice to know what a unified church looks like in real time. What does it look like to weather a conflict and still stay a single um, church? i got more people jumping in. Hey, Mom, good to see you. Um, good to see you, Teresa. Glad you guys are here. Um, so we're going look at three things, the setting, what they actually did, and how it turned out. The first thing we want to look at is the setting. Um, I'm going to spend... A little bit of time on this, not long, because I did a pretty deep dive on this last week, um, and I don't want to uh, I don't want to waste too much time on it. But uh, I do want to uh, kind of reiterate that this was a real and intense theological difference. This was not an argument over whether to play um, modern. Hey, Betty, got Betty jumping in. Good to see you. This wasn't a debate on whether or not to play modern music or hymns uh, on Sundays. It wasn't an argument over whether it was appropriate to speak in tongues or not. It wasn't an argument on. Uh, what direction to vote in the next election. This was, this was an argument that bore on everyone's understanding of what it meant to be saved. It says this, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised, uh, by the law, according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was a debate about who qualifies as being on the team and who does not. That is a big deal. This is They're fighting over what they consider to be a salvation issue. This is not just um, a style issue. This is, this is big. This is a really big deal because when we begin to talk about the idea of church unity, this will come up. See, we generally do um, this when we begin to struggle with church unity. We start by questioning the other side's salvation. Because if we can convince ourselves that they might not be saved, then we have no responsibility to be united to them. Because we aren't called to be at unity with the world, just the church. And so we ask questions like, uh, but would a real believer live like that? I mean, if you you were really saved, wouldn't the Holy Spirit convict you and, and empower you to stop living like that? Right? Have you heard that question? Or... But if you truly believed in the Jesus of the Bible, could you honestly also believe that? It's a real question. Or, but, but if you don't believe in this one doctrinal point, let's just say a seven-day creation, then doesn't that undermine your entire faith in the Bible? I and mean, Whereby, how could you believe in Jesus if you don't believe in His Word? It's a good question. Or, with somebody who loves Jesus... <clears throat> and once Jesus to be Lord of their life, really be able to vote like that. You see what we're doing? We're taking these issues that concern us, these, these doctrines that we care about, and we make them a salvation issue. Because then we can say, what fellowship has light with darkness? And we can separate rather than, than fighting for and trying to, to find unity. And so, I just want to point out that that's happening in this story today. I'm not trying to undermine the severity of any of these issues. They're they're real and they're important. But I do want us to recognize that everything going on in Acts 15 in this story today is equally important and severe. Right out of the gates in verse 1, the Judaizers make it clear in point-blank language that they consider this a salvation issue. This is a situation that we would consider strong enough to separate over. So that's important to know, that they are no different than us. The second thing I want to recognize um, in the setting of this story um, is that unity in the local church is not enough. Paul and Barnabas disagree with them. And they arguing vehemently, finally the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church uh, sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way at Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. So we know from these few verses, there's uh, a church, probably much like OTCC in Antioch. There's also a church in Jerusalem, and along the way, Paul and Barnabas stop and chat with groups of believers in Phoenicia and Samaria as well. Churches meeting with other churches. I bring this up um, because one of the ways that we tend to cope with our lack of unity today is to scale the church down so we can work toward unity in something that seems more feasible. Um, we know we can't fix the rift between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church that's been here since 1054. We know we aren't going to undo the Protestant Reformation from five years ago. In fact, within the Protestant world, to whichever denomination you adhere, we know we have zero voice in any other denomination. So really, it's best just to focus on our denomination. And within each denomination, they're overwhelmingly, you know, uh swamped with bureaucracy and politics. So really, as as long as we're avoiding a split at our local church level and we're encouraging people not to church hop, then that's fighting for unity. All that really matters is that you're unified in your little church. And believe me, I get that. I have no idea how to fix the great schism of 1054 from Wellsville, Kansas in 2021. It's not going to happen. But I will say that this morning's story... The early church was more than just a ragtag bunch of passionate Jesus followers who sold their possessions and cared for the, for the healing people while doing miracles. That's how they started, but they're not that anymore. The church has taken on structure and staff, and it exists in many locations and, and local bodies of believers, and they were led by many different passionate and opinionated leaders. It was starting to look way more like the church today, and less like the group of ragamuffins that came pouring out of the upper room on Pentecost. So before we chalk up church unity in the book of Acts to something that was only possible because things were so much simpler back then, please know that by Acts chapter 15, this is a fully functioning, complicated organization made up of a crazy ragamuffin bunch of Jesus followers in many different local community churches. So they're, they're just like us. Um, in this account, too. So, the last piece of the saying I want to draw out this morning is that both tradition and innovation are at the table. The church sent delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenician Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's delight with the Gentiles, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentiles' converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. There are two worlds colliding in this story. On the surface, there's racial divisions. One group's Jewish, one group's Gentile. Um, that's fairly obvious, but um, but really the division goes way, way, way deeper than this. Um, one of the worlds here is 1,500 years old. And from the, Moses, the minute Moses stood at the base of a mountain and told his people, this is how it's done, their worship and behavior was not only predictable, but it's been centered around the Word of God in a way that every debate and discussion, every change and challenge was rooted in the God-given, trustworthy Torah. The other world at play here is about 10 minutes old. It was made up of passion and new excitement. It was made up of people who, from the moment they heard about Jesus, were willing to walk away from everything they had ever known. Religions and relationships, traditions and tenets, to follow a fresh leading of the Holy Spirit. I point this out because both of these forces still exist. and They both come to play and exert a great deal of pressure in our fight for unity today. A great deal of what we do is because it's how we've always done it. Some of this comes straight from the Bible and carries a great deal of weight, and we have every reason in the world to take it seriously. And some elements of church are brand new and grow from a blend of pragmatism and just doing whatever works or a deep desire to share Jesus and the gospel with as many people as possible as we advance the kingdom. So when the Bible speaks to something like this, are any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to come and pray for you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. We would assume for a church to function in a biblical way, the elders of the church must be physically present with people who are sick so that they can uh, anoint them with oil. This presupposes you're in the same room together. I cannot anoint you with oil through a live stream. And yet... Here we are for both pragmatism and a desire to continue to get the word out and love our community and our Ofam when we say this, we meet online. This is brand new. This is like ten minutes old in the church. and we have no intention of ever doing this but but you we have to adapt and so those same pressures exist today the the tradition we want to hold to and 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 the innovations we have to make so that the gospel continues to go forward. So in the setting of Acts 15, it's, it's very much like the church today. The church in Acts is struggling with different theological perspectives that went deep enough to bear on their salvation. They were also geographically divided into many local churches that each had their own flavor and leadership. They were culturally divided Um, with one church full of Greeks bearing a Greek name and the other full of Jews bearing a Hebrew name. And they were divided between history and tradition, one side spontaneous uh, and and innovative, and the other um, deeply rooted and anchored in Torah. So before we dive into how they managed to stay one church, please know that this moment in Acts 15 is very much like what we face in church today. It's really no different. So don't use the excuse that things were so different back then. It's very similar to what we face. So now that we know we're looking at a church very much like our church, let's look at what this church actually did to maintain unity. First, and this might seem obvious, but they did not debate alone. But when some of the believers who belonged to the second of the Pharisees stood up and said to the Gentile converts, must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. And then, if you jump down to verse 12, everyone listened quietly to Barnabas and Paul told, as they told, the miraculous, uh, told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among them, uh, through them among the Gentiles. Sorry, I'm getting worked up. Making me read bad. Um, the council uh, included Pharisees. Uh, and people who had known Jesus for years, and people who were deeply committed to the Gentile believer's best interest. They made sure that everyone had a seat at the table. And I know it sounds silly to say they didn't debate alone. How could you debate all by yourself? But isn't that exactly what we do? We hear about what the other side believes, and we don't actually go talk to them about it. ask them to teach us why they feel the way they feel. We don't actually spend time with someone we disagree with to see if if there's actual fruit of the Spirit present in their lives before we judge whether or not their theology is right. We just pass judgment. We tell ourselves what they believe, and then we soundly and irrefutably disagree devastate their position with our solid, biblical exegesis. And then we declare ourselves to be the winner, right? It's like we have a full debate all by ourselves in our little echo chambers. The early church didn't do that. They, They took the time to sit at the same table with the other side, believe it or not, and talk. Holy cow, do we need this in the church today? Cancel culture is evil. I don't care what side you are on. Silencing the other side is wrong, especially in the church. We're called to be at unity with other believers, all other believers. And that starts by listening to them. Despite all their theological, racial, historical, behavioral, cultural differences, they made space for each other and they listened to each other. In fact, I might go so far as to say you shouldn't criticize anybody from a different church, from a different denomination, from a different political, theological persuasion until you know and love somebody in that group. When you can no longer give them a tag, you have to give them a real human name. That's when I think you're finally ready to start looking, then I don't think you say anything. When you're not talking about Catholics, you're talking about Steve, a friend of mine, who would give me the shirt off of his back and who's done so much good for the kingdom of God. When you're not talking about liberals, you're talking about Cole, a friend of mine, who's given up so much to reach youth and give them a safe place to build relationships and worship Jesus. When you're not talking about Calvinists, you're talking about Steve, a different Steve than Catholic Steve, but... Someone who was there for me in one of my darkest moments and picked me up. Maybe it's just me, but I have a harder time criticizing their entire camp when I love them so much. Because when I criticize their camp, I'm criticizing Steve and Steve and Cole, and that hurts me. So the early church got everyone at the same table. They sat down together to talk and listen. The second thing they did in this passage, after they invited all the sides of the table, was to consider the evidence. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the gospel news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between them and us. For he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we will all be saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood up. Brothers and sisters, listen. Peter has told you how uh, about the first time he visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. And it was written afterwards, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I'll rebuild the ruins and restore it. So the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called on my name. The Lord has spoken. He has made these things known so long ago. Now, this might be a tough one for some of you, so bear with me. Uh, two things really make up this argument in this meeting. The evidence and the scriptures. The first piece of evidence that God uh, that they brought was God's spontaneous um, infilling of, the, of Cornelius when Peter was preaching to him. Peter referred to his own experience of, of going to this first Gentile convert's house. When Peter hit the part of his message where he says... You received Jesus by believing in him. The Holy Spirit just fell on Cornelius and his household. And that served as confirmation to Peter that God was behind this new and unexpected twist in the story. And that went a long way towards swaying the council. Uh, But the second thing that impacted their decision, the second piece of evidence, um, is the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. When someone comes back telling you of all the towns they visited, now the Jews, with their perfect Torah lives, had no interest in Jesus, but this group of non-Torah Gentiles were not only giving their lives to Jesus, but were experiencing life transformation, and uh, and they were so ready to sacrifice for God, and, and that God was responding in signs and wonders. It's really hard to pretend like these are not amazing things. But, but the evidence of what God was doing was, was only part of the piece. Um, it wasn't enough to sway the whole council. James stands up and says, the Old Testament actually predicted this very thing. And this seals the deal. So we have two pressures uh, at this table in Acts. It's experience and Scripture. And you might immediately think that, that Scripture trumps experience, and I would tend to agree with you, but Scripture tells us to look at evidence. Look at the evidence of our experience. Jesus holds a tree can be identified by the kind of fruit it produces. That's evidence. Paul adds, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Now, why on earth would Paul tell us that the, what the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life is if we're not supposed to look at evidence. And notice, none of these things say sound doctrine. Paul doesn't say the evidence of the Holy Spirit is going to be sound doctrine. That's a little spooky. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas each had these experiences of God working and moving among Gentiles who neither obeyed nor had any intention of obeying Torah. And still... I think if it had contradicted Scripture, they probably still would have shut it down. But James speaks up, and honestly, he gives a pretty thin biblical defense for the Gentile inclusion, which I think is significant. Because God was obviously moving. Amazing things were happening. Things that only God could do. And it was like all the council needed to, was to make sure this didn't contradict Scripture. Like, they just needed an excuse to get behind what God was doing. And I think that's important. Today, I feel like we do the opposite. We, we don't search the Scripture to find any way we can be as inclusive as possible. Instead, we dig and we hunt for at least one verse that forbids something that annoys us. It's, it's like we just need a single verse from Leviticus to say, Thou shalt not so that we can condemn those people, and, or that entire denomination, or, or, or that whole political group. And of course, that, that, uh, that group might be engaged in missions trips to, to parts of the world that, that are reaching impoverished people. They might be building hospitals and orphanages and, and doing amazing things. You know. But as long as we can find that one verse, we can say, no. Those aren't my people. And that verse might exist right next to a verse that says not to wear mixed fabrics or when you come into the sanctuary you have to have blood on your earlobe or or God forbid that we shouldn't eat bacon. <laughs> but we ignore all of that because praise God we have our one verse that gives us permission to exclude that group. And we'll quote it every chance we get. The Council of Jerusalem didn't do that. Pardon me if... <laughs> If I'm making this sound light, but it's almost as if all they needed was that excuse to be inclusive. I mean, think about this. They're trying to decide if Gentiles had had to become Jews to be in the family and the people of God. Up until then, um, that's what it meant to be the people of God, was to live according to Torah. So it's a pretty understandable argument. It, it's pretty understandable why they would think this. And and here is the scripture that that James digs up uh and, uh, and, 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 here, and here's what it says about Gentiles becoming Jews. Um, I will rebuild the ruins and restore it so the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those called by my name. This doesn't really say anything about if Gentiles have to obey Torah or not. That's the argument. The argument is whether or not they have to obey Torah. This verse doesn't even really address that. I mean, nobody's really arguing whether the Gentiles can get saved or not, just whether or not they have to obey Torah. But I assume the fact that the passage from Amos 9 here that they're quoting includes the word Gentiles rather than saying everyone will become Jews, and so the council figures that's close enough. And doesn't it seem like it's the wrong spirit to approach the Scripture to hunt for the people we can keep out? Like we're looking for every possible excuse to exclude somebody unless they slip through the tiny window of invitation that we've created. The early church seems to say the fruit is good. God is doing good things and the Scripture doesn't forbid it so we want to get behind it. We want to embrace it. And this might seem like a risky proposition. But ask yourself for a minute, what exactly does it hurt to be more open and inclusive and less restrictive? Either God is powerful and in control and sovereign, or He isn't, unless you feel like God really needs you to be the one who keeps the wrong people from sneaking in, from knowing who deserves to be in and who shouldn't. The very first time I ever experienced this, kind of in my own life, this kind of relief of, uh, was I had some association with a church that was doing this kind of revival um, service kind of thing. Uh, revival was going on somewhere else in the country, and they brought some people in to, um, to see what it was about. And I was interested, so, um, so I went. And I, and I went, and, and there were some things in, in uh, kind of their uh, philosophical approach and some of their methodologies that didn't really fit with me. Uh, But I was conflicted. Um, It didn't didn't feel like something I could be a part of, and yet when I looked around the room, I saw all kinds of uh, people being blessed and and engaging and and uh, and worshiping deeply and and passionate. seemed like they were being ministered to. And and yet, no matter what I tried, I I couldn't engage. Um, I was uncomfortable. And so I, uh, I searched my heart, and I went out in the foyer um, of the church, and I, and I stood for a minute, and, and I prayed, God, I can tell for whatever reason I am not in a place to fully be a part of this. Um, I totally recognize, though, <laughs> that you are doing a, a good thing in there. You're doing something that is really blessing some people. And I don't want my reservations... Um, and my uh, maybe even skepticism to get in the way of anybody being blessed by you. And so I took a minute and I prayed over that service and I prayed for those people that God would break through and do an amazing thing and just fully and powerfully bless that church. And then I went home. And I was able to leave feeling connected to the church and praying Um, that God would rock their worlds and save souls and heal hearts and bodies while also not participating. There was no conflict. I left feeling good. And believe me, my typical MO would have been to take notes of each part of the service I didn't disagree with, that I didn't think was biblical, and then do my best to make sure everybody knew why this wasn't from God. And I have to be honest, not being that exclusive felt better. I left feeling good. So, not only did the did the church gather every perspective at the same table to make space for each other, and more than, than just a biblical argument, they also considered the fruit of each side, the evidence of what God is doing. The third thing the church did is they combated division by embracing humility. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, so I no greater burden on you than these few requirements. We talked uh, about this last week, but the humility shown by the apostles in this passage is astonishing. These are the guys who spent over three years with Jesus. These are the guys who were charged with starting the church. These are the guys who had seen three thousand people get saved their first sermon. If anyone had the right and the ability to speak definitively about doctrine and practice in the church, it was these guys. And yet all they said was, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I have to tell you, if the church today could grasp that one point, if we could catch this one thing, I think the entire atmosphere of the church and its testimony to the world would be changed overnight. We often have ten biblical arguments locked and loaded as to why this group or that group are wrong. And we speak with the full authority of Scripture, or at least the five verses that we've memorized for this particular case. But we bring it all. We bring it vehemently and And we feel like what really gives our argument weight is the fact that we are so solid and immovable and rigid. And the one thing that is missing is humility. Any kind of understanding that we might be wrong. And here's the thing about humility. We're all pretty sure that we're right. Right? I mean, if we thought we were wrong... We would change our belief and then we would be pretty sure that the new belief is right. That's what it means to believe. You think you're right. So understanding that you could be wrong is not something you're ever going to feel. You can't wait until you feel humble to embrace humility. This is something you have to embrace because it's right whether you feel it or not. Just to know, man, I believe this with all my guts and I'm going to embrace it and chase after it and live according to it. And yet, I could be wrong. We talked about how Peter argued with God over the animals that came down on the sheet. And he had to change his understanding of the direction of cleanness in Torah in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. He had to change. He was wrong. Paul went from zealously destroying Christians because he loved God so much to preaching Jesus and narrowly avoiding assassination himself because he loved God so much. And he changed in a flash, literally, from heaven. And if Peter and Paul, the pillars of the faith, could have been so wrong and allow the Holy Spirit to change their course without missing a beat, we have to be willing to believe that we could also be wrong on any point as well. And the way that we hold firm to our convictions and still remain teachable and humble at the exact same time not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Firm in what we believe. And yet, teachable is exactly the way the early church did. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to believe these things. This is what we, we feel is right. This is what we believe after all of our searching and digging and hunting and obeying God. That these are right, but we also know that we're human. And we can miss. I believe the majority of the division in the church doesn't come down to theological differences or differences in worship preferences or different beliefs in how the church should be governed or liturgical differences or anything else. I believe the majority of the division in the church comes down to a lack of humility. We don't, we don't listen to each other because we're, we're so convinced we're right. And honestly, if we do not do better at this, the rest is a waste of time. If we don't start from a place of humility, even as we chase hard after our deeply held convictions, maintaining a place of humility, then we have no chance at church unity. Which means we have no chance of being a Bible-believing, obeying church. Think about that for a minute. If you you abandon church unity, you cannot be a Bible-believing church. So, this church that is so familiar to the church today is facing uh, differences so similar to today's differences, actually sit down in relationship with the other side. They consider not just uh, their own opinions, but they, they, uh, but they also um, listen to, to what's going on and what the Holy Spirit is actually doing in the lives of, Of others. And finally, approach the whole thing with humility, trusting the Holy Spirit to guide them in their desire for unity. Which leaves only one thing to look at how does this play out? What does this look like? What does it mean to be a unified church after a major conflict? How do you do life together when you disagree on a major theological point? And to get the answer to that question, we actually have to look at Paul's account of this event, which he makes in Galatians. For the same God who worked through Peter as an apostle to the Jews also worked through me as an apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were pillars of the church, recognized the gifts God had given me and accepted Barnabas and me as their co workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that. And doesn't it seem like whatever comes next should be really, really, really important? I mean, if if you walked uh, into a conflict resolution meeting and the whole thing ended with all parties 100% satisfied as long as you do one thing, can you imagine how important that one thing would feel? I mean, the, the whole thing is hinging on one thing. They accepted me. I accepted them. We were all good. They just said, "Hey, just remember one thing." What would be what would be that? What would be on the list for you if you met a fellow Christian? And you were, or you were considering another church or denomination. Um, what would the belief or the list of doctrines be where you were willing to say these are people are going in a different direction than me? Maybe that it's not the kind of thing that I'm into, but I consider them full brothers and sisters as long as they blank. Like, what, what's on your list? What, what, what do you come up with? What are the essentials for you? In, in Galatians, um, it, it might shock you a bit, it says this, uh, they encourage us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they confirm their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor. <laughs> Which I have always been eager to do. Did that make your list of essentials? It's crazy uh, that after this intense theological debate, the apostles' parting words weren't bathe everything in prayer. Make sure you bathe everything in prayer. It wasn't stand firm in the Word of God. It wasn't make sure you vote the right way in November. It wasn't make sure no one raises their hands in worship. It wasn't make sure everyone raises their hands in worship. It wasn't whether to get vaccinated or not. Too far? Maybe too far. The one prerequisite that the apostles were most concerned with was that they make sure that, that wherever they go, whoever they preach to, they remember to take care of the poor. <laughs> but there's a lot more here that I think we need to see. First, unity did not mean uniformity. They left this meeting recognizing that they had differences and that those differences were not a net loss, but on the contrary, made church more effective. In the 90s, I was part of the Promise Keepers movement. Now, I went to a conference and the preacher pointed out that Sunday morning at church was the most segregated hour in American life. I was heartbroken. I went on a crusade to end racism in the, in the church and it was a really healthy time for me. But for years, I desired to go to a church that had more African-Americans and more Latinos and more Asians. And I spent years frustrated that the churches I went to were all so white. But after a few years, I realized that what I meant when I said I wanted a mixed congregation was that I wanted black people and Latino people and Asian people who liked pretty much my style of church, in other words, I, 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 I like my style of church, and I wanted people who like my kind of worship and my kind of church. I didn't want any of that to change. I just wanted to look out and see more color in the crowd. I mean, don't get me wrong—I love black gospel music, but I can't really fully participate in it. It's, I'm not that gifted. It took quite a while for me to, rep- to, to recognize that separation isn't always segregation. Sometimes it's a style thing. It's a comfort thing. Churches with a certain style of music and a certain style of preaching and particular approaches to fellowship will attract a certain type of people. Different churches will attract different people, and that's a net gain. It might seem counterintuitive on a message when we're talking about church unity, but the way they found unity was by humbly embracing that they were different and that that was okay. They each had their own calling, recognizing that the other had a different calling. And that gave them the ability to stay one while going in two directions. So it wasn't right or wrong, it was right or left. And this is huge because when it comes to church, we feel like everything has to come down to right or wrong. If I'm right, of course I am, then everything different must be wrong. And we're so afraid of the word subjectivity that we think to say two things um, can both be right is somehow um, embracing subjective truth. But but please remember this one deeply theological statement. Hear me. Chocolate and vanilla are both awesome. (laughs) I I hope you hear that. And yet if I ask most people which is better... They would divide up into two teams, and before long, they'd be calling the other team mean names. When well, the only smart approach, if you like vanilla like I do, is to surround yourself with people who like chocolate so you don't have to share the vanilla. Uh, listen, I don't care what theological, political, or ideological issue you are passionate about. There are amazing people on the other side of the argument that I think you would absolutely love if you gave them a chance. If you gave yourself a chance to love them. The early church did this crazy and amazing thing in chapter 15. They made a perfectly spirit-led unified decision to be different. How powerful is that? I mean, can you imagine how different the atmosphere of the Protestants and Catholics might be if instead of feeling like two different religions arguing and competing with each other, they got all their leadership together, whatever that might look like, and they argued and debated, and then as one unified church, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Catholics, you're going to leave this place, and you're going to go minister to the Catholics. And Protestants, you're going to leave here and go, you take the Protestants. And and, and everyone, 100%, is in agreement as a single, unified church to do this. Ready? As long as we all don't care for the poor. Can you imagine? Nothing would change. Every Sunday would still be the same, but can you imagine how different the atmosphere might be? We might actually be grateful. Thank God that Catholic church is there taking care of all those people that I can't reach. Unity depended on the church recognizing one another's unique gifts and callings and releasing the other to the purposes that God has for them in full fellowship. And when a famine breaks out in Jerusalem, all these Gentile churches that Paul is in contact with take up an offering. they, They gather resources and share back with Jerusalem. Because they're one church. And that heart from chapter 4 of, of sharing all their things is still there. Even though they've got different congregations and, and they're spread all over the place and they've got different leadership, they're the same unified church that sold everything they had to take care of one another. The church is the same even as they're different. So how do we respond to this? I hope to make uh, a compelling argument from the Scripture over the next few weeks that we are called to be unified as definitely as we are called to do anything else in the Bible. And every time it feels impossible, I want us to look back at Acts 15 as a reminder that this can happen. And please know that I'm, I'm choosing this series for a reason. I believe that this message of unity And not just from me, because I believe it's popping up all over the the worldwide church right now. I think this message is prophetic, and and I don't use that word lightly. The world needs us to get this right, and right now. This is not a small thing. The world is so divided right now, and it's only getting worse. And the church is absolutely no better than the world At this one. And we all see it, and we all complain about it. We all complain about how divided and divisive everything is, and then we immediately dig in deeper and get more and more entrenched. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is calling the church to do better. And just as the church has gone through revivals where a new focus on scripture and biblical literacy, like in the Reformation, and just like the church has gone through revivals, where the focus is on piety and repentance, like the Great Awakening, I think we are looking at a major movement of the Holy Spirit calling the church to stand against this gigantic tidal pull toward division in our world. And I think God wants us to say that we will not follow the world in this one. We will lead the way With love and join hands and make space for my fellow believers even if I don't agree with them because they are mine so the way that I would love for us to respond to this message is to pray right now start this morning we're going to pray together in a second but start praying right now that God would open your heart and mind because I believe when we start talking about unity immediately we put up walls Yeah, but what about those people? Yeah, but that's too far. Yeah, but I can't. It's the yeah buts. If you don't know what the yeah buts are, we'll talk about it. We all have yeah buts. So the way I love to pray for this is to pray that God would open our hearts and our minds. I know today was a little academic and maybe dry, but this is not an academic subject. I don't know that there is a more important issue for the church to get right today. And I think we'll try to come up with every reason possible not to hear this message or to trivialize it so that it doesn't change us. So please, begin to pray right now that the Holy Spirit would open your heart and mind to receive this message over the next few weeks. Let's pray today, today. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it not only uh, tells us what to do, but it tells us stories of Churches that did it. Tells us stories of people that got it right so that we can look at that and be inspired to get it right ourselves so we can believe it's possible. God, I, I pray that you would um, open to us, Jesus, your priestly prayer where you prayed that we would be one. God, let them be one as you and I are one. That's a hard prayer. It's a hard prayer. And so much of your scripture backs it and, it, and it's so easily overlooked. So, Holy Spirit, as we dive into this topic of church unity, what does it mean? How seriously do you take it? How do we do it? What does it change in us if we embrace it? Where do we draw the lines? As we dive into that Holy Spirit make our hearts tender Open our hearts up To be more like yours Don't allow us to hide behind Anything Don't allow us to hide behind our traditions Don't allow us to hide behind our politics Don't allow us to hide behind our our Theological persuasions Don't allow us to hide behind our laziness Open us up to receive your word. Even now, begin to till up the soil of our hearts so that as you plant seeds, fruit can grow. We need you to do this work in us because without you, we'll never never change. So we surrender this whole study to you, begging you to change us with it, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wherever.